Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. Let's Talk Micro, it's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Pandora, GoodPods. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. I am also on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, so go ahead and follow. I always like to post pictures of organisms, and I give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So go ahead and follow, leave any suggestions, comments, any uh, podcast topics, any feedback. It is always welcome and appreciated. And if you haven't checked the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, go ahead and do so. It was a great interview with Claire Danielson and Sarah Lou Allen from Michigan Tech University from their Medical Laboratory Sciences program. So they came on board. They talked about their MLS program, and they talk about the summer youth program. So we are always trying to bring awareness to the medical laboratory sciences profession, and initiatives like these are ones that they really help the profession because they're already, these programs, they involve high school students. So by the time they go to college, they already know that medical laboratory sciences is an option. So it was a great interview. I had a great time. And, you know, this, this initiative, this summer youth program with the MLS, has been going since 1974. So that's amazing for Michigan Tech University. So when you get a chance, go ahead and check it out. And today's episode is another interview episode. So I had two guests on this episode, uh, which are Jennifer Dean Bard. She's a director of microbiology at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And also had Dr. Amy Lieber from the Department of Pathology Laboratory Medicine from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So they came to the podcast to talk about a, an article that was titled The Hidden Crisis in the Times of COVID-19. And in this article, you know, they talk about the shortages that we are facing in the laboratory. You know, they talk about you know, the wages and how for statistical purposes, you know, they're currently the medical laboratory technicians and the medical laboratory technologists or scientists, you know, they are grouped together. And they talked about the challenges that we have in the laboratory. So as far as hiring people, you know, staff, the time it takes to train them, you know, they said something great. And it said training microbiologists does not happen overnight. And that is something that it is very true, and everyone in laboratory medicine needs to understand that micro sometimes, you know, it's a little bit different from other areas of the lab. So there's a lot of technical terms, there's a lot of information, and the flow, it's, it's different. So everyone needs to be aware of that. So they talk about solutions, you know, they talk about how, you know, the medical technology programs or medical lab sciences programs, they have decreased over the years. So many challenges, and they also talk about solutions. So it was a great interview. I really like, you know, how they present the problems. And, you know, they're, they're there, and it's time to talk about solutions. So great interview. So let's go ahead and check it out. 
So on today's episode, we have two guests to discuss an article titled The Hidden Crisis in the Times of COVID-19, Critical Shortages of Medical Laboratory Professionals in Clinical Microbiology. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology for the American Society for Microbiology on June 6th of this year. So with me here in Let's Talk Micro, I have Drs. Jennifer Dean Bard and Dr. Amy Lieber. Doctors, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and start with an introduction. Sure. Uh, um, I'm Amy Lieber. I'm a director of microbiology and immunology at Nationwide Children's uh, Hospital. So we are a pediatric hospital um, that serves a wide range of patients in central Ohio. And we have a wide range of testing we offer and um, including molecular and things like multi-top. And then Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer Diambard. I am the director of the microbiology and virology lab at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Um, so similar to what Amy mentioned, our patient population uh, ranges from you know, acute care to uh, highly immunocompromised individuals. Um, we're a quantity care freestanding pediatric hospital. And we do have a range of testing as well from basic micro, um, Malditoff, and then molecular. Okay. So this article was uh, actually um, a review. So what was the purpose of this review? Well, this all started prior to the pandemic. Um, as a clinical microbiologist and as a laboratorian, uh, we're constantly looking for people to hire. Um, at my own laboratory, we are never fully staffed. And it is a recognized crisis that's been ongoing for well over a decade. It's very hard to move the needle on this. Um, and particularly when there's also shortages in other professions like nursing and allied health. So really we wanted to do a review of the situation specific to microbiology. So as a, a subcommittee within um, ASM, professional standards and workforce issues, we started out to do just a survey of microbiology labs to discuss what are their challenges and issues with um, staffing. That's really where it started. Um, as I was reading the article, I saw that, you know, it talked about the licensure for personnel performing testing under the CLIA standards. Um, can you talk more about this? Sure, I can comment on that. Um, so the requirements are different um, from state to state. Every state has their own specific um, preferences, it seems. Um, there are currently only about, I believe, 11 states or so that require licensure, which includes California, New York, and Florida. Uh, the remainder of the states do not require specific licensure to work in a CLIA certified lab. However, certification through um, the American Society for Clinical Pathology, ASCP, um, even though it's not required, most employers do prefer to hire certified lab scientists with um, the specific certification sought out through ASCP. Okay. And I, I, I'll see, you know, I see on the article that there's also uh, data for the number of individual, individuals employed as MLS and MLT. It is combined under, on, on the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So it is mentioned that doing this, you know, it is inaccurate. You know, I, am, I was actually, before I was an MLS, I was an MLT, so definitely I, I know that the differences, but for the audience, can you elaborate on why this is inaccurate? Sure. Um, so 
you know, a med lab scientist versus a med lab technician, um, they are basically two very separate professions that, um, that consists of very different training and certification requirements. Um, for an MLS, which is the, the, the med lab scientists that are pretty much working on the, in the microbiology lab, but also other labs, um, this requires, um, this involves, I should say, a broad range of clinical lab testing, including highly complex testing. Um, and the profession and the, their job description is very different than what an MLT would do, which is more so from the, the front end specimen processing side, but also some moderate complexity testing. Um, so to combine the two is really just doing a disservice for both because it's it's two very different and very important professions um, with two different um, certifications, but also salary ranges. And so the fact that we're not really, I guess, being accurate about what the average salary or median salary is in the in the US um, for both of these, it, it just speaks to one, us not really understanding what the profession is, but also um, it does a disservice from the, the salary standpoint when you're looking at where, if there are prospect students that are looking for, for professions to really understand what they could, could potentially get you know, as a compensation from the from the monetary standpoint. Yes, and you know, as you mentioned, it I I do definitely you know see and with the monetary standpoint, and you know, there are some places where actually you know the the MLTs they pretty much perform they have them doing the same functions as an MLS, and then you have this huge disparity in pay. So you get an MLT that's been doing this for twenty to twenty five years. And they're maxed out as at X amount. And then someone that comes in graduate as an MLS starts making pretty much the same or very close, you know, and they don't have the experience. They haven't been there as long. So definitely, yeah, there's definitely many differences between MLT and MLS, you know, job description, pay and, and more. And it can be a very big dissatisfier to the employee to know they've worked I mean, it can go both ways. Um, with an MLT, you only have to have an associate's degree. So they didn't put in the school years that their counterpart is a medical laboratory scientist. So it is a difficult balance in the workplace, but sometimes we just need literally bodies to fill a position. And we're to the point where, you know, we're having to think creatively how to fill those those vacancies. Yes, definitely. And, you know, to add to that, sometimes, you know, we even have like, um, like the AAB, you know, which is big in Florida. So if someone has a bachelor's or or they do the MLT, then they take that test and they get licensed as an MLS. So some differences there. Um, so uh, can you briefly touch uh, on the vacancy rates in the laboratory? Uh, yeah, our, our survey didn't really look at true vacancy rates. ASCP does that every two years, I think. And it can vary by different parts of the laboratory. But in microbiology, what we found is nearly 80% of the labs responding to our survey had at least one vacancy. And we see that um, either through ASCP or our data, it's very hard to fill thing, uh, places in rural places, second and third shift. It's often very problematic. So what happens is we have to limit our service either by cutting testing off at, you know, after 8 p.m. or things like that. So 
Um, vacancy rates um, are problematic, but if we, we're trying to, again, to be creative to fill them, um, I don't know if you feel that in your own hospital, but our vacancy rates have made us think of re-shifting um, work. Um, we used to offer things 24-7, which now we're not. I, I'm sure Jen has the same thing going on. It's it's It can be very, very problematic and really is affecting patient care. So, um, yes. I yes, and I think that was, oh, sorry. I was go ahead, that. please. <laughs> to that um i was just going to say that yeah and i think that was one of the one of the main reasons we wanted to put together this review and also to highlight that you know the the lab lab medicine is a very important part of healthcare, and um you know to, to encounter these issues with regards to staffing in this in this specialty is going to directly impact all areas of medicine not just laboratory um yes and um so as you know, Dr. Lieber, so definitely I, I did, you know, I have experienced, you know, in my facility, this shortages, um, we used to prior to the pandemic, I mean, we were getting staffed enough where we even had, um, let's say like we had like even urine cultures being read on all three shifts. Um, and we even, and I was, I, you know, took part in this, we were even reading wound cultures on night shift and just to keep things going because it's such a, such a large facility. And then we went through, you know, so many shortages that it was hard to find people. Um, we even, um, so we have to close some of those benches at night, you know, keep it maybe on a, on a stat basis. Um, then that will be more for like a molecular test or a rapid test. Uh, but then we had to resort to, we, we hire like um, probably about six to eight techs from the Philippines through the program, you know, where they applied. And then they come in and, you know, having said that, and, and I was talking about this before we started recording, you know, it turned out to be a, a blessing, actually, because it was, you know, I never worked with techs, you know, from other parts, um, but definitely, you know, such great work ethic, uh, you know, such teamwork. So it just, it made, it made our team so much stronger right now. So definitely, this is something that if, that we should continue looking at in the in the future. Yeah, it. Um, I think in California and other parts of the country, th that's not a totally foreign concept. Um, somehow in the Midwest, if you're not at a huge institution, that, that alone would be a big undertaking. But you're absolutely correct that there are some excellently trained individuals outside of the United States that if we're creative uh, and get the help from our administration, we can you know, bring into our lab. That's a great idea. It definitely is. And and this will be a whole separate topic, but a little pet peeve of mine, you know, I was talking about work ethics, you know, nowadays with technology and cell phones, we see that people tend to be more hooked on with them. And you see a lot of these, you know, phones in the hallways. And so, you know, all this text, they don't bring that to the table. It's just, you know, work, 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 work. You know, on their breaks, they do phone calls, social media, whatever. But it's just, it's kind of nice to see that in this, this day and age um so as far as you know we there's definitely a demand for medical lab scientists and and mlt so but then the programs right the training programs they have declined so much um any ideas as to why um, has this happened um you know I'll, I'll take this one back in the 80s there were like 800 or more 
college-based curricula for medical laboratory scientists, I mean, you went to college and then you graduated with that degree, that's dropped down to about 200 now. The reason why I'm not exactly sure, usually it always relates to money. These are expensive programs to maintain and um, maybe the demand wasn't as great as it is now. So unfortunately it's dropped to a level where just through the college-based programs, we can't produce enough people to meet the needs. So there are other avenues which are reviewed in the article where you can get a bachelor's degree in science and then have one year of training in a laboratory and then you could get accredited. But um, not a lot of people know about those programs through ASCP, sorry. That's another thing we want to promote, that there are ways to get the training component, the in-laboratory training you need, even if you have a bachelor's degree that's not in medical laboratory science. So it's important to know that. And some of the best people we've had, we've trained on site and really um, have been fabulous employees. But it's a big commitment from the employer because basically you have to train, you have to pay them while you're training them. So it, it, it is a, it's a challenge, but I think it's well worth it for many laboratories. Okay. Yeah, definitely is. And even those, even those programs that we do have, you know, they even have sometimes, you know, enough supplies and, and personnel to maybe, you know, graduate one class at a year. So you have a one point in time, you have maybe 60 students and 30 are your seniors, which are just going through their practical, you know, practicals. And then you have what they call your juniors, which is the just starting through the program. So even with the you know low amount of um, number of programs that we have, not, not as many techs are, are produced. Okay. So now um, let's switch to shortages for clinical microbiologists. Um, can you talk about those and the issues, you know, filling those positions? Sure, I can tackle this. Um, so this is in line with what Amy was just talking about. You know, we have less training programs. So, um, and the training programs are for mostly the generalists. So you're, you know, you have four other options that they could, that they could, uh, or I guess four other specialties that they could explore. So that in itself results in shortages in my clinical microbiologists. Um, we have. I mean, this is something that has been going on for years. I remember when I was a fellow over 10 years ago, um, my director at the time was presenting on shortages in, in um, MLSs and what we should be preparing for. And here we are kind of talking about the same thing, but it's been, it feel like it's been a lot worse because it's a pandemic for various reasons. People are retiring earlier. Um, people are burnt out and switching professions entirely. Um, at the same time, there's just not a lot of advertisement and knowledge of these training programs or limited training programs. Um, so we've had a lot of issues in filling positions, lots of competition, but not enough people in general to, to try to compete against other places. And so similar to what Amy said, you know, we started to um, kind of increase our own internal training for so that they can pursue their um, license, I guess, certification through ASCP and then licensure through through the California state. Um, but it's a it's a long it's not a quick solution because it takes a year to train them, and you're also training while you're short staff, which you know is another 
fun part of it. But that's one of the things that we're trying to do right now to try to help, at least in the future, alleviate some of these issues. Okay, yes. And, you know, you mentioned it definitely with with the pandemic, we saw um, some of the more, um, you know, senior techs, you know, they had been working for 20, 30 years, and maybe some of them, they might have some health conditions, or some may not, but they were like, um, you know what, uh, this COVID, maybe this is the time for me to, I don't want to get exposed to this, get into this. So, and I also saw that sometimes, you know, maybe some packages were offered and some, you know, some of this more um, senior checks, they took them and so they retire. So that definitely uh, contributed to the, to the sort shortage of them as well. And um, from those things that you mentioned, I'm also going to talk about them, but I'll talk about after I ask this next, this next question, uh, which is, you know, when I was in reading the article and I love this line because, you know, it is so true. And I always had issues trying to make people see this, not everyone, but some, and it is, you know, training microbiologists does not happen overnight. Can you please talk more about this? Sure. Um, as you know, microbiology is much more um, manual than instrument-based, even still, so that it requires a level of comfort with IDing things morphologically, um, having the skills to um, identify organisms by biochemical tests, the like. So for example, in areas like mycology and acid-fast bacteria, those cultures take so long to grow, and we're still using a lot of morphologic characteristics to ID fungi. So it can take years to really become proficient at this. Um, so by the time we train someone, give them two years of experience in an area, and then what happens is we'll lose them. So we don't have any depth of experience in these areas that really take a long, long time to learn. Things like IDing parasites from um, smears or um, doing um, gram stain reading is a big one. We still have incredible difficulty training people for second and third shifts to read gram stains um, with any you know, consistency. And it's just because they haven't been around long enough. That's just something you learn through experience. So unfortunately we end up with corrected reports um, and it's not something we want, but we're, we're left with, we have to have someone here to read it. And if they only have two or three years of experience and there's no one on the ship that they can run something by, that's when we have errors and things. So that's why it's so important to have um, your leadership, the C-suite, so, so to speak, recognize that I'm not putting down chemists, but chemistry is a different profession in terms of the depth of experience you need as opposed to something like micro. So we're still seeing that even if we have all these advances, we still have to have some level of expertise that can't be given to someone in, with six weeks of training. And I just, I'm just going to add to that really quickly, just to chime in. Um, it's hundred percent, especially in the, the more specialized area like parasitology and mycology, but even in basic bac bacteriology, um, gram stain is an, a very underappreciated art, in my opinion. I think that just the, the sheer reading of a gram stain can inform uh, a provider 
quite a bit about the one for us about the specimen type itself, whether it's a good collection or not, but also um, how significant of a sample it is and what potentially could be growing and causing the infection. And I think we are slowly losing that, that art in the sense that we just don't have enough trained staff to, to really know how to knowledgeably read the slide, but also appreciate it. And I think there's a fear almost of reading gram stains because you know if you're not comfortable with it, you want to avoid it and you want to avoid those corrective reports basically. But um, I think it just kind of speaks to that is it's something that doesn't get happened overnight. It takes years of experience to really become proficient. And I we really need to tackle this now or else we're really gonna lose that art. You know, I definitely uh, agree with that. and. You know, the gram stain, like you said, you know, it's, it's such an important tool. And sometimes, you know, either, you know, there's, it needs, it's, you know, we train people and it needs repetition. You know, it's so important, both, you know, direct when you get your sample and, you know, indirect with your cultures, you know, it will say, you know, it saves time. And I was talking about this before we started recording, you know, and I said this throughout my episodes with the Molotov, you know, sometimes, you know, you run something through the Molotov many times when you can have your, your answer. All right, just doing a quick, you know, we can at least point you in the right direction, right? If you need to rule out something real quick, you do a quick wet prep or a quick gram stain. Oh, I have GPR. It's not like I'm looking for, or, or is yeast. So let me go this route. And it is something that it takes, it takes a lot of time, you know, and that's why I think, you know, with, with the students, when I teach in the lab, I have them the whole year. They're doing as part of the exercises. They're always doing gram stains. So they're always, they have their sheets and all the organisms, you know, they're gram staining. And at the end, I collect those sheets and I give them points, you know, for their work. So they, they're rewarded, but at the same time, they're learning because it's something that you can up to the, even we're going to have many years of experience, but we can still over decolorize. We can still under decolorize. And that's without talking about this automated systems, which I think in my opinion, you know, you know, the tech should be really comfortable doing the manual staining before they can actually jump to the automated staining. You know, a reagent runs out, something is off. You know, a huge difference between saying gram-negative cocci and gram-positive cocci. And you wonder, you wonder why, um, like on our benches, we have readouts of normal cutaneous flora. And now the newer techs have moldied every single thing on that plate to determine its normal cutaneous flora. When in the past you do a few, you do a gram stain and a few spot tests and get to that exact answer. So I totally agree with you. Yes, that's the um, yeah, it, it it it's challenging. Like, you know, you go in, you're following someone, and then in that culture you have six or seven workups about things that were spotted and they were either the same or different and and this ties up to the whole that, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. You only get proficient with these organisms, you know, and these uh, cultures by seeing them over and over again, by doing the biochemicals, by doing, that's why before when we had Vitech and other systems, you kind of knew what you had before you even put it on the instrument. So that's, you're just doing the instrument to prove it, to confirm what you have, but you already know. And this takes time. And this is something that everyone needs to understand. Because, yeah, like, like I said, you know, chemistry, uh, hematology, you know, valuable parts of the lab. You know, you need those results. They're very important, but they don't work the same. You know, you can resolve your hematology issues, you know, within the same shift. Maybe a few hours you have a clotted sample, request a new one. 
chemistry, you have a questionable value, you do a dilution, recollect. With micro, you know, sometimes, you know, it can take three or four days to produce a final result. So it, it, it takes time and someone has to sit with that person to train them. So you have two people there, like I said, so they have to sit there the whole day. And so it's, it's, it's a time consuming process. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about um, solutions. Well, uh, fortunately, um, there's a lot of people working on this, but unfortunately, it's been the same for about 10 or 15 years. So um, there's no easy, easy or fast fix to this. But obviously, if we had more four-year programs in medical laboratory sites, that would help. Uh, I think colleges are a little hesitant to bring those programs up again to your question, why did it decline? I'm sure it's a financial um, hit or, you know, a, a investment to have a big training program, but we do need them. Um, also, each person that comes out of those training programs needs a practicum site, just like you did. You went and trained in a hospital. So that's an investment, either to be an accredited training site or even to be a non-accredited site. It takes investment from the techs that you already have, and it can slow things down. But in the long run, it's a win for the site. Some other things that we, we like to think of is think of innovative ways to train people. There's a lot of online schools now for medical laboratory technology that you could do the majority of your coursework online, and then you have to find a place to do your lab practicum. And, and um, finally, and I think this is the biggest, we need to draw awareness to the profession. And we also need to draw awareness to the salary range. I think part of why we can't recruit people is maybe they don't feel like financially it's a good route to go. Um, we make less than nurses. Um, but I think we have just as important a role to play in healthcare, but we're, we're not patient facing. So I think people can forget about how important we are. So those are some of my ideas. I don't know, Jen, if you have any, something else you want to add in. No, I mean, I, I think you've covered it quite well. Um, yeah, it's, I think everybody is at the point where they're trying to be very creative. Um, adding the international workers, like you mentioned, Louise, is a, it's really a great idea. And I think if other labs and, and so can, can explore that, I think that will probably help. Although it probably will take some time. Um, increasing internal training programs like we have and many other places have as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's getting that understanding to whichever level the C-suite or administrators within the hospital systems to, to recognize the importance of this specialty. Um, and I would argue that we are patient facing in the sense that, you know, yes, we don't, the phlebotomist, which is also part of lab medicine, we do see some patients, but we are definitely frontline, um, com you know, um, compared to nurses or pharmacists or anything else as well. And, and it's really just trying to get that recognized. Yes, you know, and with, would add in this, you know, like the the uh, people that you know, like they have their bachelors in microbiology, and then they can do that training. You know, I think that's a good um, solution as well, because yeah, when when the MLS program, you know, you have four areas to choose from, and from what I've seen, sometimes you know, a lot of 
you know, techs, they either stay away from blood bank and micro because of the amount of technical knowledge that they need to have, you know, plus, you know, about micro, they always say the ones that don't like micro, it's like, I just, I can't stand the smell in the room, you know, things like that. So it's just, it's, it's hard, even though. Smell, there's no smell. (laughs) No. (laughs) So out of those 30 that come out, you know, maybe you get two at the most or three and then you know, most of them end up being, you know, going to the core lab or hematology and and chemistry. And you were mentioning the pay, you know, it's something that definitely needs to be worked on. Um, You know, it is unfortunate, but it almost, the way that the the system works, it kind of promotes techs to go from hospital to hospital in order to achieve a better pay rate. You know, you can have a a tech that starts in in a company and then after five or 10 years, you know, the, the salary increase might be minimum. However, you might have a tech that has worked for 10 years, but maybe jump two to three hospitals at a way higher rate. And I think, unfortunately, it shouldn't be like that because you want to employ your retention, right? You want to have, you know, it's an investment, like, like you said. So we don't want to lose that investment. If you spend all this time training someone, you want them, they're working and happy. So it's something that it needs to be addressed. Um, is there anything else that either of you want to add? Well, I would just say if if you have friends or family that are coming out of college with a bachelor's degree in science, and they maybe don't have a clear, clear career path, suggest this to them, that, that if they can do what's called the, um, four plus one, four years for your bachelor's degree and one year of training, you can become a medical laboratory scientist. And I'll point you to the ASCP Board of Certification. So if you go to ASCBOC online, there's a a good document that shows you, and I can give it for the show notes, um, of how you get these certifications and what are all the pathways. That will be be great, yes. All right, Uh, Dr. Dean Barr, do you have anything else? Um, Nothing further to add other than you know, this is a really important topic and thank you for inviting us to to touch on it and discuss it further. Um, I don't think this problem is gonna go away. It's, if anything, it's just going to get worse. Um, so we really do want to, or need to um, put some effort and focus on this if we want to have future um, medical laboratory scientists working in microbiology. You know, definitely, you know, it was definitely a pleasure having both of you here. And I said this before, and you know, I'm always a big fan of anyone that uses their, you know, their training and their positions, you know, to make this field better. You know, it's it's such an important work, and it seems that both of you are trying to do the, you know, that same thing. Just putting the issues out there, and let's see what we can do to make it better. Because it's just we need this. It's just at the end, the ones, you know, we if we're short staff, you know, we get tired, we get overworked. But at the same time, you know, one of the, the worst outcomes is that the patient suffers because they might not get those quality results, you know, so it's, just, and then we don't want that. I mean, that's why we do this, you know, this work to make sure that our, you know, our, our patients get the best results out there. Yeah. It, the bottom line is the patient and that's why we should all care about this. So, and we thank you for bringing attention to it through your podcast. So it's been, it's been a joy. Thank you. Definitely my pleasure. Um, so 
Okay, so once again, you know, thanks for coming to Let's Talk Micro. And in the future, if you have any more, you know, issues like this, or you, you know, if you wish to come back to talk about another issue, um, please, you know, feel free. You know, the, you have an open invitation. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>